Well, amen. It's easy to preach after 10 baptisms. Amen. I hope you guys are excited. Yes, guys. All right, listen. We're launching a new series today called Plot Twist and the Parables of Jesus. And I got some news for you. This is going to be our final series in this building. Amen. You better be excited about that. Okay, hold on, hold on. In fact, before I can't even get into the series yet. I'm too excited. I got to give you a building update. Does anyone in here want a building update? Yeah. Give it to all right. I'm going to give it to you. Listen, guys, I got to take us back. Okay, if you're new, we got, you know, some of you are here to watch your kid or your friend or someone get baptized. Let me just tell you where we've been as a church. We're a seven-year-old church, and for the last three years, uh, we've been experiencing this. I mean, hello in the lobby, four services, they're all full. We're like this big family that's, well, let's just call us a homeschool family in a starter home. Okay, that's what we're in. And, 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 you know, there's only two bathrooms and everyone's trying to work in the kitchen. It's too crazy. And so we've been on this journey to find a home that fits our church family. Guys, and it started for us three years ago. Remember January, 2021? What was everybody in the world doing in January, 2021? They were fighting over whether or not you should get vaccinated. They were fighting over who should wear a mask. Remember that? They were fighting over, should we open things or should we close things? Well, while they were doing that, by the grace of God, we bought 13 acres and architected our future. And guys, we are three years into this journey together. Because of your generosity, $4 million in one-time gifts, we we're able to get the land and do everything that we're doing. We built and designed the building and then we've been moving all around on the property. Guys, we started on this property 15 months ago, just moving dirt. Well, guys, the kid's space is done. It's carpeted, it's painted, sinks are in, bathrooms are in, it's done. The fence around the property is being you know, built as, you, as we speak. Um, as you, if you were to go over there and just drive by, about a quarter of the parking lots are already paved and painted. So you can start going and picking your parking spot. You know, that's right. <laughs> right, there you go. Uh, the electrical panels have all come in and tomorrow morning, 1,300 chairs are being delivered, amen? <laughs> Okay, and they're not 18 and a half inches, which is what you're sitting on, right? All the guys are like, are we getting bigger chairs? We're getting bigger chairs, okay? Yes. Okay, so that's exciting. And so, guys, uh, I'm ready to give you a date. I'm ready to give you a date, okay? Now, this is a plan, not a promise. But it's a pretty good plan, okay? And we're preparing for this. Guys, we are planning on worshiping together in that new building on December 17th. Woo! Come on. All right. All right, all right, all right, hold on. I want you just to close your eyes for a second. Just close your eyes with me and hear that again. December 17th. Isn't that beautiful? Guys, on December 17th, we're gonna be in this building, Lord willing. And uh, we're gonna still be in the parable series. And here's what we're doing for preparation. We're going through the parables. And then we are going to get, we want you, we want you to get on the property. So on November 15th and 16th, we're gonna do two back-to-back -back prayer nights at the property. So, okay, the good news is we're gonna be able to get on the property, walk around, pray. We're gonna have our staff there. There's gonna be, your, okay. Uh, but we're not, not because we don't want to, but because technically we can't. We can't go inside the, buildings yet, the building yet, okay? Now, I know how some of you are. You'll be peeking in every window, and that's okay, okay? <laughs> but we wanna come together. We never say this, but this is in two weeks, not next week, the week after. Uh, we never say this. We want you that week, the week of the 15th and 16th, we want you to cancel your community group. And instead of having community group that week, we want you to come with your community group or by yourself or with your family. We're not gonna have childcare, so you can either get a babysitter and come um, or you can bring your kids and pray. We're gonna do it an hour each night. You can decide I'm gonna come, see it, pray for 10 minutes, leave, 
or you could decide I'm coming with my whole community group and we're gonna do, we're gonna pray for the whole hour around the building and then we're gonna go to dinner, whatever you wanna do. We just, we've been dreaming and we've been planning and we just wanna commit all of our plans as the scripture talks about to the Lord in prayer. So guys, we're almost there. I told you a couple weeks ago that we are in the third trimester of a pregnancy, okay? Now I'm using that illustration and I'm saying, here's what we're doing. It's actually, we're experiencing labor pains and we've checked into the hospital. That's what we're doing. And our water, okay, no, no, I'm not getting all that, okay. Let's, let's pray. Uh, Lord, we just are so excited, genuinely as a church. It's, it's one thing to do something you love, it's another thing to do it with people you love. And we are so excited for this facility to facilitate ministry and mission to help us go deeper in discipleship, wider in mission, to be an ark and a lighthouse for our city, to be a home for our church family and a hub for ministry for decades to come. So we've just got about five weekends left, six weekends left, whatever it is, in this facility before we head into this new era as a church. And so we're just, I'm so grateful for those who've prayed, those who've served, those who've given to make all of this a reality. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Well, I love a good movie. I know you love a good movie. We all love a good movie. You love a good show. And what, what I love in a good movie, many things, good acting, all that, a good storyline, but I love a great ending. In fact, I've watched movies before. You have done this too. And the movie's good, but the ending is just okay. And you're like, eh, I don't really, wouldn't recommend that movie. Then you've seen other movies like The Dark Knight. You're like, wow, that was a surprise ending. Or Sixth Sense. You're like, Bruce Willis is dead? You know, sorry, if you haven't seen it, it's been 30 years, okay? Um, or Shawshank Redemption, he gets out in the end. I mean, all, all these amazing stories. Well, if you'll type two, turn to Matthew 25, Jesus told parables that always had shocking, surprising, and startling endings. Uh, the only reason that you're not shocked and surprised and startled by the endings of the parables is because you've been reading them and hearing them all your life. Guys, in Jesus' parable, the bad guy, in their mind, the Samaritan saves the day. Guys, in Jesus' parable, the guy forgiven so much forgets to forgive so little. Guys, in Jesus' parable, the really bad, rebellious son, he gets a chance to come home. Jesus tells parables. Here's what a parable is. We're gonna get into them over the next several weeks as we get into our building. Uh, Jesus tells parables. Here's what it is. It's a spiritual story. Or it's a story with a spiritual point. It's a story that has a spiritual point. And here's what's interesting from what we can tell about Jesus' ministry. The more hostility, and this is interesting to think about, the more hostility and the more opposition that Jesus experienced, the less he does direct teaching and the more he starts to tell stories. Well, why is that? It's because if I started to tell you a story, you, your defenses come down a little bit. I can circumvent your defenses a little bit and your presuppositions and you start to listen to a story, but then sometimes at the end of the story, you realize, wait a second, I think that story was about me. <laughs> In fact, I think I'm the worst guy or gal in that story. Jesus is gonna to talk to us today about the parable of the talents. If you'll turn to Matthew 25, verse 14, we're gonna look at one of the longest and most foundational parables that Jesus tells. Uh, it's in this teaching of Jesus in Matthew 25. It's his last body of teaching in the Gospel of Matthew before he goes to the cross. And Jesus tells three parables. I won't get into all of them. We're just gonna focus on one this morning. He tells three parables about what you should be doing in between Jesus' first coming and his second coming. And so today we'll focus on the parable of the talents. But before we even do that, we have to know what a talent is. Now, when I say a talent, what you tend to think, or Americans tend to think, America's got talent, right? Like if I said, if someone's got, you got any talents, and one of you gets up here and you're on a unicycle or something like that, look at my talent, you know, one of you can dunk, one, you know, whatever. We, now, those are certainly talents, but that's actually not what the Greek word translated talent means. 
talent was a unit of measurement back then equal to 75 pounds in today's metrics. So here's what he's saying. Uh, one guy gets, you'll see it in a second, but many of you know the story. One guy gets five talents, one guy gets three talents, one guy gets, or sorry, one gets five, one gets two, one gets, uh, one, gets one. And it's 75 talents of, we guess, either silver or gold. But even by conservative standards, even if it's silver, one talent of silver back then was 20 years worth of an average laborer's salary. So what I want you to know is whether you have five talents, we'll get into this, or whether you have two talents, or whether you have one talent, what you have is a lot. In fact, let's get into the story. I want you to see this. We're just going to read the first two verses to set it up. We'll get through the whole thing, but here's what it says. For it will be like a man, this is Jesus telling the story, going on a journey who called his servants and entrusted, if you underline your Bible, that's a great word to underline, we'll talk about that, entrusted to them his property. To the one he gave five, and to another two, and to another one, and to each according to his ability, and then he went away. I wanna to talk to you today about stewardship. There are two main themes in the Bible, salvation and stewardship. Uh, it's helpful to simplify. I mean, the Bible's a big book, right? 66 books, it's written across 1,500 years, it's got 40 different authors, it's written in three different languages, it's got two themes. Theme number one is salvation. It's God pursuing his people at great cost to himself to win them back. It's, it starts with God pursuing Adam and Eve in the garden. It ends with Jesus going to a cross and dying for our sins in our place. It's the amazing story of the grace of God pursuing us. That's the number one theme of scripture. The number two theme of scripture right alongside it is stewardship. Think back to, the, if you know the story of Adam and Eve, most of us are somewhat familiar with it. Remember the first thing that God does after he creates Adam and Eve? He says, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. What is that? Well, steward everything that I've given you. And then if you go to Genesis chapter two, he says, hey guys, actually, uh, what I want you to do is I want you to subdue and have dominion. It's like, okay, subdue, have dominion, uh, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth. All of this is language of stewardship. In fact, I'm gonna tell you what's on the test when you die. Two questions. What did you do with my son? That's the salvation question. That's what we just asked. And what did you do with my stuff? That's the stewardship question. That's the final exam. Well, in what I just read you, which is just two verses, are the five components, or we might say the five facets, or you might say the five dimensions, the five elements, it doesn't matter, of stewardship. I wanna talk about this and then we're gonna get into the parable at large. But you have to understand stewardship because today we think of ownership, not stewardship. Stewardship has five components. If you take notes, I'm gonna show you these five components right from those two verses. The first component of stewardship is there is one owner of everything and it's not you. God is the owner, he is the master, he's the Lord, whatever your translation says in this parable. God owns the cattle on a thousand hills. In fact, he doesn't just own the cattle on a thousand hills, he owns the hills, he owns everything. He's the creator and sustainer of everything. The second principle of stewardship, so there's one, principle one is there's one owner and it's not you or me. Second principle, there are many servants. Do you see that? Or we might say stewards, or we might say managers. God created the world so that there would be one master, him, and many, many managers, us. God has ownership, we get loanership, okay? God gives us these things to steward. Okay, this is the exciting part. The third principle, so there's one owner, there are many managers, and he entrusts things into our care. Now the word entrust has a double meaning here. It means when I entrust something to you, I want you to guard it, and I want you to grow it. We'll see this, the bad servant only guards. Anything that God has given you, he doesn't just want you to guard it, 
Some of you are all about guarding your money. Guard, guard, guard. He doesn't want you just to guard. He doesn't want you to just protect something. He wants you to invest. He doesn't want you to just defend what he's given you. He wants you to expand it. So this, this is the story of our lives. God owns everything. We show up. We're servants. We all get different amounts. We'll get to that in a minute. It's like we didn't all get the same stuff from God, okay? And then he says, whatever I've given you, I just two things. Just the rest of your life, what should you be doing? Guarding and growing what God has given you. Don't worry about God gave someone else. You have way more than you can handle already. And number four is, part of stewardship is the master leaves and we don't know when he's coming back. It's like, okay. Well, that's also the story. That's, that's the story of uh, so many of Jesus' parables. Somebody's gone for a long time. And the question is, when the cat's away, will the mouse play? Right, that's an old saying. It's like, what will you do when you can't see God? What will you do with this temporary period of time called your life before Jesus returns or you die? Which leads to the fifth part, which is there will be accountability from the master at the end of time. Those are the five components. Now, that, here's what this means. This means that God is a part of everybody's future. It's like, well, what if you're an atheist? No, God is still a part of your future. This is just a fact. It's like, well, what if I don't believe that? It doesn't matter. I, if I walk off a building and I don't believe in gravity, that does not matter. Gravity's still going to win. What if I don't like that? Well, facts don't care about your feelings. It, it, so what if I just wanna live in a drunkard stupor and just act like that doesn't matter and I wanna give myself to immediate, you know, cheap pleasure my whole life? It's like, well, you can do that, but you're still gonna meet God at the end of it. And so it's, it's a sobering. I mean, these parables are, you know, they're not feel-good, guys. Just a warning over the next few weeks. I mean, these are... They bite, they surprise, they shock. So what I want us to do is I want us to look at these three men. I'll read what I just read again, and I want us to see a couple things about this parable. Um, and by the way, the big idea for this whole um, sermon or this text is what will you do with what God has given you? Don't, don't worry about what your spouse is doing. Right? Some of you go, I can't wait for my spouse to hear this sermon. Mm-hmm. No, 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 no. Well, not, oh, you're not about your kids yet. We'll worry about them later. Not the person who makes more money than you. No, 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 not them. What will you do with what God has given you? That's the question. Okay, let's go back to the text. For it, I'm back in verse 14. For it will be like a man going on a journey. So there's God, he's the owner, who called his servants, that's you and me, and he entrusted to them, that's grow and guard, his property, to the one he gave five and to the other two and another one, each according to his ability, then he went away. Notice he says, it will be like, what is it? Well, if you go back up to the top of Matthew 25, you don't need to do that, but he says the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven will be like. So what is this parable about? It's what life should be like in the kingdom of God. See, what, what we need to do as Christians is we need to live kingdom down, not culture up. Many of us are way more influenced, let's be honest, by the culture than by the kingdom. We're more influenced by the culture than the kingdom because we spend more time on the screen than in the scripture. And so he's gonna tell us what the kingdom's like. See, what Two Cities Church should feel like is the kingdom. What a local church is, is it's an embassy for the kingdom of God on earth. And someone should walk in and go, whoa, this is a different culture than I experience anywhere else. They do money and sex and marriage and forgiveness and leadership and parenting different in here. Well, here's the first thing that he tells us about the kingdom. And some of you are not going to like this, but you, we all know it's true. Here's the first thing Jesus tells us in this parable. Life is not fair. 
And you guys go, oh, I knew it, I knew it. Okay, he said it out loud, yeah. We all know it, guys. We find out that life is not fair somewhere around age three. Do you remember this? You're like, My, you know, he got more toys at Christmas. It's like, well, they were more expensive. Or yours were more expensive, right? Or how about like, he got more ice cream or she got more ice cream. It's like, I gave you both two scoops. Well, he's had more chocolate chips. It's like, you know, it's just like, one of the reasons why middle school is so hard is because you just like wake up and you realize how unfair life is, right? So here's what happens, guys. We all have this experience around, you know, three years old, four years old. Actually, what's happening a lot in our culture right now, okay, among, there's just a group that they like to play the victim card. And they like to act like they're oppressed. Okay, do you know these people? I'm not saying, of course there are people who are oppressed. Of course there are people who are victims. But let's just say the elite students at Harvard, Yale, and Princeton are not them. Okay, now why do people want to play the victim card? Well, here's what they've realized. There's two things that we need to realize. They only realize one of them. They realize that life is not fair. And you're always going to be able to look at somebody else who has more than you, and you're gonna be able to envy or be jealous or play the victim card or act like you're oppressed. But this is why we have to remember two things. Life is not fair, but God is just. What does that mean? Well, if you read carefully the first two verses, it says he gave to each according to their ability. Here's the good news. God will only hold you accountable for what he's given you. Now, you should go like this, Woo! except that that's not that encouraging. Because you realize, okay, well, great. Then I can't use any excuses. I can't blame someone else. I can't be comparing, competing, conquering. I just need to focus on my own life. But then you'll realize, wait a second, most of us are gonna realize, I don't know if I'm doing everything I should be doing with what God has given me. So what we have to do for just a minute, before we can move on to five talents and two talents and one talents, is ask, what are the talents that we've been given? Look, I wanna to talk to you about this for a second. I want you to think about it because you can't be grateful for a gift from God that you don't know you have. And you can't steward a blessing from God that you won't admit he's given you. So let's just talk about a couple of the blessings or a couple of the talents that God's given us. Number one, God has given many of you health. I know we're not all super healthy here, but a lot of us are very healthy. And as I've heard it said before, if you have a thousand problems and then you have a health problem, you have one problem. There is nothing like your health going bad. And this is why, by the way, youth is always wasted on the young. Because <laughs> people don't realize until later how good it felt to be young and vibrant and strong. And this is why the Bible says, give your youth and strength not to the evil one. How about time? Guys, we are living so long compared to our ancestors. We're getting seven, eight, nine decades. And we would not even be able to explain to our ancestors how much discretionary time we have. John Piper, he's a former pastor in Minneapolis, Minnesota. He once tweeted out on Twitter or X, he said, uh, social media at the end of time will show that people had enough time. That people's social media usage at the end of time will show everybody that people's disobedience was not due to lack of time. People have had plenty of time. Part of our problem is we waste our time. How about just finances? The amount of, you know, we are in the 1% in the world if you make more than $32,000 a year. But no one wants to talk about that. 
We want to talk about the 1%. The Jeff Bezos's of the world, right? And the Mark Zuckerbergs and the Elon Musk. It's like, you are the 1% of the world. But here's the other problem. We don't mind when life is unfair as long as it advantages us. You're not too upset you're born in America. That's a pretty big advantage. It's only when something, when you don't get the promotion or something happens to you or someone you love and it doesn't happen to someone else and it's negative, all of a sudden life for you is unfair and you're upset about it. Guys, I mean, how about just education? How about experiences that we've had? How about our networks and our influences? Some of us in this room are even good looking and have a great personality. Some of us, okay? And so uh, it's like, uh, you know, all of these things got, you know, can be used. Now, here's the truth. He tells us life's not fair. He says some people have five talents, some people have two, some people have one. Let's talk about the five talent people. And if you're a five talent person, don't raise your hand. We don't need any bragging in here right now, okay? <laughs> but, if, you know, here's how we feel about five talent people. We tend to be jealous of them. I was at Duke uh, doing ministry for four years, and I remember I met this guy. I met so many impressive people. Uh, I mean, you know, almost everybody who goes to Duke is a five-talent person. And that, that's why you send your kids to school at Duke. I mean, they teach the same thing at all the schools, okay? It's the same books. Why do you send your kids to Duke? Because then they get to be all around all of those families with all of those resources, and the elite class continues. That's why you do that. Well, anyway, so the, these, you, you, you can't even explain the type of student at Duke. But I meet this kid, and I'm, I'm you know, impressed with him. And I said, I said, where'd you go? I'm trying to figure this out. How do you get into Duke? And I said, uh, where'd you go to high school? He said, Andover. I said, I've never heard of it. He said, it's where Bush went. I said, the president? He said, yeah, when, when, when we went there, they told my parents, if you send uh, your son here, he will not get into any, the worst school he'll get into is Boston College. And I just realized there is just a whole network of people who are training and preparing the next generation and giving them every advantage. And it's fine. And, and it's easy to get jealous of people with five gifts, especially if they're young, because they didn't earn or deserve any of it. It's like, you have wealthy parents. It's like, I'm good at tennis. It's like, you had a private tutor. <laughs> you know, it's like, come on. You know, it's like, as my, as my uh, father-in-law used to say, some people woke up on third base and think they hit a triple. It's like, okay, you woke up on third base. And, and by the way, this is the interesting thing about five-talent people, okay? And, and, and many of you are five-talent people. Five-talent people don't like to admit that they have five talents. Why? Because then they're responsible. It is amazing to me how people can be unbelievably wealthy. I'm not even talking the 1% in the world. I'm talking people can make an enormous amount of money and they will not ever say they're rich. Well, why wouldn't you say you're rich? Because as soon as somebody says, I'm rich, they know they're responsible. Who wants to do that? Other people are rich. People who make twice what you make are rich, but you're not rich. Because as soon as you're rich, I mean, as soon as you said that out loud, if you told other people you're rich, like, well, you know, what are you gonna do about that? So we just don't like to be a five-talent person. We kind of keep that secret. The, the temptation with a five-talent person is to misuse or waste what they've been given, right? We all know this. Like, think about this. I'm using finances because it's the easiest category to think of. I can remember when I first got into ministry and then I got married and Margie and I, we were, we were so poor we could barely pay attention. Okay, that's how poor we were. And I can remember, I mean, I, I'm talking shoestring budget. I'm talking like we had to agree, okay, you get $15 this month and 
you know, that's three drinks at Starbucks, you know? I mean, it was like, and I was like, okay, can I get this? I mean, when you don't have a lot, some of you have never not had a lot, but let me just tell you what that's like if you don't. And you don't have a lot, it's like everything matters. You, you have a budget. You're organizing it. Like, you're thinking about your vacation. Everything's expensive. Everything is a cost, you know, gain-loss analysis. It's all the time. But then as you start to make more money, there's a little bit more freedom. And I don't know, some of you may wake up one day and you're like, yeah, it doesn't matter. I could buy this. I could, I could spend that much on groceries. It doesn't, it doesn't matter. I could save this much. It's like, well, just know that's true with giftedness. That's true with money. The more you have, the easier it is to waste it or to misuse it. But then there's one talent, people. Who, who's the one? No, don't raise your hand. Okay. <laughs> Guys, the one talent, people, let's just be honest. None of us want to be one talent, right? It's like, who wants to one talent? We, we love stories about one-talent people, but we don't want to be them. For example, we love the story of Rudy. Remember Rudy? He's a little overweight. He's a short guy. He's not very athletic. He's got a huge heart. Wants to play at Notre Dame. Wants to play football at Notre Dame. Because of his heart and all the trial and error, he gets in the final game. He makes the tackle. We're like, ah, it's a true story. It's unbelievable. Guys, we love stories of number of, of one talent people so much, we make them up. Forrest Gump, he didn't even exist. It's like, oh, here's a guy with special needs and he goes to the White House and he fights in wars and he, he was, ran races and he gets his high school sweetheart. It's like, we just like, we, he starts a fishing, co a shrimp company. We're like, unbelievable. Will Smith, remember the pursuit of happiness, single dad, true story, sleeping in a bathroom in a, in a subway station, barely making enough money, hoping it goes through, hoping he can provide a life for his son, hoping he can you know, take the little bit that he has and, and maybe some version of the American dream comes through for him and we love it. But don't call us a one talent person. Don't put me in that category, right? Five talent and don't, I got too much responsibility. One talent and don't insult me. So maybe we say we got two talents. The point is actually not to figure out are you five, are you two, are you one? But just to embrace everything God's given you and get to work. Here, I'll show you. So those, that's the setup. Life isn't fair. So here, here's what you do. It's like, well, what do you do when life isn't fair? You play the hand that you're dealt. Look, he who had received five talents went at once and he traded with them and he made five more talents or five talents more. So also he who had two talents made two talents more. But he who received one talent went and dug in the ground and hid his master's money. It's interesting that we get two good examples and one bad example. I'm gonna spend actually a little less time on the good examples because Jesus spends less time on the good examples, interestingly enough, for some reason, and spends a lot more time telling us about the bad example and his conversation with the master afterwards. So we'll get there. But I want you to notice two things, and very simple. Because well, how do you use what God has given you? How do you practice stewardship? We just see the two principles that are right in the verses I just read from the good servant. The first thing, do you notice it says that he, he went to work at once and traded. Here's the principle of stewardship. What do you need to do today? The time to start is now. We know this, that the most time wasted is the time getting started. That's procrastination. What is procrastination? Procrastination is I will put off until tomorrow or farther into the future, what I know I could and should do today. And let me just tell you technically what's the problem with that. You and I will do anything tomorrow. Have you noticed that? Have you ever talked to somebody, they're not eating healthy? It's like, hey man, or hey woman, 
You know, you can't live off the Eto's diet. You know, Cheetos, Doritos, Tostitos. Okay, this isn't healthy. <laughs> you, you know, and then and then they, they, here's they, they always say the same thing, right? If you ever like really talk to them, I'm starting it tomorrow, right? After vacation, I'm, I'm going to do this. It's right, right? It's like everyone will stop drinking too much tomorrow, and they'll stop looking at what they should, you know, be looking at tomorrow. And or sometimes it's not tomorrow. It's hey, you know what? I'm going to invest in the kids and really prioritize our spiritual life when I get the new raise or the new position. Or, hey, we're going to start doing date, date night at least once a month. We're going to start that next month. And the problem technically is that tomorrow never comes. It's always today again. And so what do you, this is so simple. It's like, you know this, but it's like, this is the teaching of Jesus. What do you need to do today? Do you know that Jesus has a theology of today? He says, don't worry. Remember the other place? He says, don't worry about tomorrow. Today is enough trouble of itself. Our main problem is we're not doing anything today and everything's gonna happen in the future and you're gonna save money in the future and you're gonna give money in the future and you're gonna start to give when you make twice what you make but then you're, the problem is that you're the same person when you make twice what you make and so you don't give then either. And, and so you, okay, what do you need to do today? Okay, you don't need to say it out loud but just do you need to repent of something? Like, you know, do you need to have a conversation See, here, here, I have a friend, and, and I think this is true. He, he said, when is the best time to plant a tree? It's an interesting conversation. When is the best time to plant a tree? Answer, 25 years ago. Second answer, today. And, and I, that's, I hope that's helpful, because some of you go, because this is, you meet people, right? People's stories, a lot of people have sad stories. And lots of people have been lying to themselves and willfully blind and all these other things. And it's like, I'm telling you, no question in this room, some of you are like, there's something I should have done seven years ago. It's like, I know. So, you know. so if you couldn't plant the tree seven years ago, when do you plant it? When I get home. Because you'll, pretty soon you'll wake up, it'll be another seven years. You're like, well, you know, seven years ago when you talked about the parable of talents, you know, we should have gone to counseling because our marriage wasn't a complete mess, but now we've just added seven more years of you know, all this confusion. And by the way, that's why people have to usually go to professional counseling. People have to go to professional counseling because it's something usually that they have not talked about early and often, and it's gotten too complex for a normal person to handle it. It's like, well, your community group leader or your friend could have handled this, but you waited seven years. And so there's so much water under the bridge. So what do you need to do today? Second thing he does is just he's focused. You can see it in the original Greek. It says right at once he went and he traded. Our problem is we're not focused, guys. We're distracted. You know, you, my, in college ministry, we used to tell students, if God, or if Satan can't make you busy, he'll make you, or sorry, can't, if Satan can't make you bad, he'll make you busy. We have no margin. Or we've filled our schedules. Guys, we have the wrong priorities. You know, we're all about trying to make money, not against making money. We're all against, you know, for our kids, athletics, academics, activities, amusement, all of that. And we're just not focused. Well, why don't you just see what happens? So those are those guys. They, they, the two things he does well is he gets to work right away and he's focused. Look here, we get the bad example, verse 18. But he who received one talent went and dug in the ground and he hid his master's money. Yeah, so Jesus is going to spend more time talking about the bad example. Now, here's the thing. We need bad examples, we just do. I know, you know, all of us in here, we just want to be, Kyle, just be positive. Just tell us happy stories. Like, 
Tell us it goes well for everyone forever. It's like, sorry, it doesn't. You know? And so he gives us a bad example. And I think it's because we need something good to run after. That would be the five-talent servant or the two-talent servant. And so we need something that's like, oh, that's the ideal. I admire that. I should pursue that. We all need that in our life. And, and then we need something to run away from, right? I mean, some of you, we, if we had time, I, you could probably look just one or two generations back in your family, or you could look to your extended family, some uncle, some aunt, some grandma, some grandpa, some cousin, some brother, some stepsister, whatever it is, and we could all tell the I never want to be him story. You know what I'm talking about? Like, it, 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 I'm talking about people who it's their fault. They didn't leverage, they didn't steward, they didn't manage, they didn't invest, they didn't guard, they didn't grow. And you're like, dude, they are completely addicted. Their kids hate them. Their adult children never want to come back and have a relationship with them. Their marriage is like a three out of ten. I'm surprised they're still married. This guy is a work of holic who sacrificed his family and sacrificed his health. It's like, you see people like this. We all see people like this. And we maybe don't want to say it out loud, but we're like, I, would, I don't want to be that person. And that's okay. Some people's lives just serve as examples of what not to do. It's a horrible thing to say. But you meet people like this. You'll meet someone every once in a while, and she'll be like, I don't want to be like my mother. And then you're like, what's your mother like? like okay, I understand. Yeah. <laughs> I wouldn't want to be like her either. That's okay, fair enough. But it's like, so, so God will sometimes give us something to run away from and something to run toward. So we're going to get to this, this negative example in a second, but he's actually going to first give us the positive example and, and how he's rewarded. His master said to him, I'm in verse 21 here, um, or I'm sorry, I'm in verse 19. Now, after a long time, the master of the servants came and settled accounts with them. It says, uh, so here's what happens. We get the return of Christ, or we can think of your death. Because here's what you want to know. The return of Christ is to everybody, but what your death is to you personally. At both events, you meet Jesus. (laughs) So whatever the return of Christ is for the whole world, your death is for you. So you're going to meet Jesus personally. And there's a lot that we don't know about the end times, what's called, theologians call eschatology. Christians can disagree and debate and dialogue about, but there's three things that every Christian, every Christian, like this is basic 101, believes about the end times, believes about eschatology. Let me just tell you the three things. We keep it simple here. Keep the main things, the plain things, and the plain things, the main things. Um, Three things. Number one, Jesus Christ will return visibly bodily from the sky when we least expect it. Okay, that's clear teaching. Number two, there will be a final judgment of the believer and the unbeliever for everything done in the body, whether good or bad. Number three, there are only two eternal destinations, heaven and hell, based on if you repented and trusted in Jesus Christ. Fairly, I mean, not easy. Doesn't give you the warm and fuzzies. But that's the teaching of Scripture. So what we're told is that at the end of time, God comes back and we give an account. See, I don't know that, and I just want to talk to the, I know it's, it's a baptism weekend, so we've got people in here who are not Christians, seekers, skeptics, others. Um, but just to the Christian for a second, I want to talk about something that I don't know, I don't know if Christians really think about this a lot. Here, here's what it is, that you are, if you're a Christian, you are saved by grace, but you are evaluated by works. So saved by grace. So some of us, like we grew up in the God forgives me, which is true, and the cross of Christ and the grace of God, and I believe in all that. 
But I think some people think they just like they die and they just hang out with Jesus in heaven the next day. Or they just give you know, Jesus a big hug and then they walk into heaven together. It's like, well, you got the whole thing about meeting Jesus right and you got the whole thing about being in heaven forever, right? You miss the middle area, which is that you will give an account to God for everything you've done in the body, whether good or bad. It's gonna be very hard. This is not gonna be, you know, there's just, God's going to honor you by talking about your entire life with you. And you will, if you're a Christian, you will get to heaven or get into heaven because of grace. But your experience of heaven will be because of what you did in, by faith with your good works in this life. I mean, do not think of heaven as a place where we're all wearing a diaper playing a harp on a cloud. I don't know how we ever thought about that. It's like, no, people are working. There's hierarchies. There's leadership. There's, I, I don't fully understand it. But we're going to see in a minute, he says, he who is faithful over little will be faithful over much. Wait, so there's different people will be over different areas in heaven. And I don't know how it all works. We do know that what you do in this life does matter in the next. I'll show you this. So here's what he says. Verse 21, his master said to him, well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful over little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. I want you to see the threefold reward at, at our judgment. Okay, this is positive. We're gonna get a negative one in a second. Here's the positive one. Three things God does. Number one, he praises us. This is part of the plot twist. What? I thought we praise God. Like, didn't we just do that for two songs? Aren't we gonna do that after Kyle's done preaching? Like, isn't that what we do? Like, isn't that what it means to be a Christian? We praise God? Yes. Isn't that what my whole life's supposed to be about? Yes. But in a weird, strange turn of events, God praises us. And it's one thing to be praised by your kids. You know, it's like, oh, thank you, but you're four. You know, I mean, I... I'm, you know, that means a lot to me, but you, you know. Uh, it's one, another thing to be praised by your coworkers, your classmates, your peers, okay? It's a whole other thing. If you've, ever, if you've ever been like praised by someone you admire, by someone you look up to, by someone you feel like is so far ahead of you and sees what you're doing and says, great job. I mean, Mark Twain said compliment was so powerful, he could live off of one genuine compliment for two weeks. So there's something about praise. Notice what does God praise? He says, well done, not well said, not well planned, not well intentioned, not well thought. He says, well done. And then he says, so the first thing is praise. The second thing is increased responsibility. You've been faithful over little. I will make you faithful over much or I will give you more. But the third thing is joy in God. He says, enter into the joy of your master. Now, Jonathan Edwards, who's great, theologian. He knew more Bible, or he'll forget more Bible than we know, okay? That's, he just knew the Bible really well. He thought about this verse and thought about heaven for a long time. Here's what he said. He said, in heaven, everyone will be completely happy, but not everyone will be equally happy. I know it like hurts your head. Like, what does that mean? He believed that our obedience to God in this life and our good works done in faith expand our capacity to enjoy God forever in heaven. So some of us are going to have a greater capacity to enjoy God based on how we lived on this earth. But don't worry, it's heaven. None of us are gonna be jealous. It's like, look, he's happier than me. <laughs> I'm so happy for him that he's happier than me. That's what it's gonna be like. But I just think we have to, we just, we have this idea that like grace comes and we're forgiven, and after that, it's all kind of a cherry on top. It's like, no, our life matters a lot. 
which is why joy and responsibility, by the way, have you noticed, are connected. He mentions responsibility in one, one verse and joy in another verse. See, right now our nation has been having half of a conversation for like 50 years, and it's a conversation about rights. Well, praise the Lord. You know, your rights and how many, you know, the question at the end of the day is like, how many rights do you need? As many as you want, fair enough. But every, every time you, you tell me about a right, you give me a responsibility. Think about that. If I'm like, is it my rights? I'm telling you, then you're responsible to treat my rights. Okay, fair enough. The problem with rights, they're great. Let's, let's have as many as we can, great. Um, is meaning and true joy doesn't come from your rights, but it comes from embracing the responsibilities God's given you. I promise you, if you ended up on your deathbed and the doctor says you got six weeks, okay, and you're, you're gonna plan your funeral and your family's gonna visit, I don't care what age you are, you're gonna be thinking, if you're a Christian, you're gonna be thinking over two things. Number one, you're gonna be very thankful for the grace of God and that you're gonna be heading to heaven. And what you will comfort yourself with in the final weeks of your life are what you did with what God gave you. I'm just telling you, that's, I've been on people's deathbeds. You're gonna say, well, thank God I got to be a dad for 25 years, what an honor. And I did the best, and I lo- tried to love my one, one wife for, for the last 30 years, whatever it is. I'm telling you, it's going to be what did you do with what God has given you that's the, gonna be the second most comforting thing after the grace of God in your life. And so if we see this man, he gets a reward, but then we need to see the other man, the negative example. He also, who had received one talent, came forward saying, Master, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you did not sow and gathering where you scattered no seed. So I was afraid and I went and I hid your talent in the ground. Here you have what is yours. So what does the wicked servant do? And by the way, I just would have to say, Jesus is gonna spend more time, I already told you, just talking about this servant. It's hard for me to imagine that none of you in here are the third servant. I mean, come on. We're, we're all doing great. We're all do, like the first two guys. Probably not. So how do you know if you're the third servant? Well, we only see the third servant really do one thing, make excuses for why he's not more faithful. How many of you, you just, you, some of you, this is the problem of being smart. The smarter you are, the better you are at excuses. And so you ever have that, like, you know there's an area of your life you're not doing what you should do, and, and someone talks to you about your drinking, or someone talks to you about your, how you're parenting, or someone talks to you about your marriage, or someone talks to you about your finances, but you already know it's out of whack, okay? So you're prepared for that conversation. And you're prepared with your excuses. In fact, what you've done, if you're really smart, is you also know a couple bad things about that person that you might just remember to bring up when they confront you in that moment. You can either make excuses or you can make progress. Now, what's interesting is making excuses is the oldest trick in the book. It's literally what our first parents did. Remember Adam and Eve, they sin, God confronts them. And what's the first thing Adam says? Uh, the woman gave me the fruit. Actually, he doesn't just say that. He goes, the woman who you gave me, gave me this. In other words, it's a subtle blame toward God, which is exactly what this man's gonna do. And he blames his wife. How many men blame their wives for where they are in life and use their wife as an excuse for all the bad habits in their life? Well, she wasn't so hard on me, I wouldn't golf so much. And I'd be home more if she was pleasant to be around, you know? And I wouldn't be looking at all the things I'm looking at if she didn't put on so much weight. It was more available. Men have been using their wives as excuses 
for all of the shortcomings in their lives for all of human history. And you women are no better. <laughs> um, what does Eve do? It's interesting. What does our first mother do? Our first mother does what women tend to do when things get crazy. They get very spiritual. What did, what did Eve do? She blamed Satan. She wants to blame, oh, there's all these spiritual reasons for why things are happening. It's like, no, it's your fault. Sometimes we want to try to get all spiritual about Satan this and demons that, and we believe in all that. Sometimes it's like, I'm trying to have somebody else take responsibility for this. See, what happens is, oh, people blame their genetics, right? People blame, oh, this is a famous one, people blame their parents, People blame their circumstances. And if they're, you know, the younger generation, just what's the biggest thing I can blame? The climate, you know, the economy. It's like the economy is not the problem. The problem is you don't know how to balance your budget. That is 100% the problem. The problem is you don't have a skill set that can make any money. That's the problem. Economy is not the problem. You're the problem. It's like, okay, well, that's where I should start. But excuses are, is there somebody else I can blame for what's not going well in my life? Guys, this is the number one hindrance to faithfulness. It's like, why? Well, you don't have as much as someone else. Who cares? You're only going to be accountable for what God's given you. And by the way, if you have one talent, guess what happens if you actually focus? You suddenly have two. And guess what happens if you focus for five years? You suddenly have four. And you do that for a few decades and you suddenly have more than the guy with five talents who's lazy. Well, here's what happens. The, the, the master's pretty upset, guys. Look what he says. Or this is the, sorry, I'm gonna go back to the uh, third servant. Here's what he says. So I was afraid when I hid your talents, I'm in verse 25, in the ground, have you what is yours? Or here, uh, you have what is yours. Verse 26, but the master answered him, you wicked and slothful servant. Whew. You knew that I reap where I've not sown and I gather where I've scattered no seed. Therefore, you ought to have invested my money with the bankers at my coming. I should have received what was my own with interest. Now, it's interesting. The man blames the character of the master. Ah, oh, you are a hard man. You go, well, how do we do this today? Here's a, here's a subtle thing Christians do. Christians make excuses for why they're not more faithful based on certain characteristics of God. Let me give you an example. Well, God, you're gracious. So what, I mean, it doesn't really matter if I do this. Now, is God gracious? Yes, is that a true characteristic of God? Yes, it is. Do we, does Paul write, you know, a lot of Romans and Galatians to make up for the wrong way we think about the grace of God? It's like, yeah, dude, listen. Yes, God is gracious, but the grace is not an excuse for you to be the worst version of yourself. That is not, you know, it's okay, okay, okay. Well, the, here's another one we do. This is very, in certain, certain circles. Well, God, you're sovereign. So like, do what you're gonna do and I don't need to really worry about anything because you're in control and you know, everything's under your sovereignty and providence. It's like, God's like, I know, I'm, I know, I know, I know. But I also, if you read your Bible carefully, I also teach about man's responsibility. So our temptation is to, we can blame God, we can go to characteristics, we can blame our wives, our husbands, our circumstances, our situations, our health, we can blame it all. But here's what God says. He calls him, a, in verse 26, a wicked and a slothful servant. Now, why wicked? What's wicked about burying a talent in the ground? I had to think about this for a while. Because he says, remember, he says, well, why did you bury it? Why didn't you put it in the bank? Okay, so what is, we can, we can read the story and we all get it. I get it, Kyle. It's obvious he's lazy, he's slothful, I get it. But you're like, what's wicked about that? Well, let me explain. Why would you put something in the ground and not in the bank? 
Because we know this, he, he says, you could have earned interest in the bank. Why would you put something in the ground and not in the bank? Because no one will know where it is if you put it in the ground. If you bring it to the bank, it goes on the ledger. There's a record. Other people know how much you have. You might be asked to do certain things. Here's what most scholars think. He dug it and put it in the ground because he was hoping the master wasn't going to come back. Then he could go get the talent and spend it on himself. How many of us, that's the greatest temptation, is to use what God has given you for self-exaltation instead of using it for God's mission or God's glory or others' good? So he says, you're wicked. Then he says, you're slothful. We know sloth is one of the seven deadly sins. Because why, why did they have the seven deadly sins? It was like, because they're the sins that are the mother of all types of sins. I mean, sloth is the mother of apathy and, you know, indifference and lack of care and concern. And, and so he, he does all this. I want you to see what happens here. Verse 28, so take the talent from him and give it to him who has 10 talents. So basically use it or lose it. For to everyone who has, more will be given, and he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. And then here's verse 30. This is how the parable closes. And cast the worthless servant into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. He's telling us that at the final judgment, and we could say by extension, at the end of people's lives, there's a group of people that will be rewarded there will be another group of people who will be filled with an enormous amount of regret. I mean, when you hear the weeping and you hear the gnashing of teeth, that is the imagery of regret. Why do you weep? Well, why did Jesus weep at Lazarus' grave? Because of an enormous amount of loss. What is gnashing of teeth? I mean, that's, that's an idiom of like, you know, if I went like, like that's what it is. It's like, I'm, 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 I'm angry and I'm frustrated or I'm in pain and maybe I'm all of them. And so, Here's what I want to say. I just want to warn us. I mean, part of, you know, it's fun to just teach and encourage, but part of the job of the church is to warn. And I want to warn you that it is possible to come to the end of your life and be filled with regret. I've met people like this. You don't want to meet somebody like this. You really don't. And you certainly don't want to be somebody like this. And here's what we know about regret. Uh, all the studies that have shown on regret show the same thing, which is that in the short term, people always regret what they did. So if you like looked over the last week or last month, your tendency is going to be, I regret what I did. You're like, I drank too much. I ate too much. I yelled at my kids. I lied. I cheated. I stole. I looked at something I shouldn't have looked at. It's like, okay, you regret what you did. That's how everybody views the short term. But if people begin to take a long view of their life on their deathbed and they look back, the, what fills people with regret long term is what they failed to do. It's like, man, I should have spent more time with my kids when they were in the home. I should have viewed my home as a church. I should have switched careers when I had the chance. I should have given generously. I should have developed this skill set. And so we don't want you to live with regret. In fact, it's interesting, in the book of Revelation, you know, you know this verse. This is a verse people love to quote. They, they say, you know, when you get to heaven, God will wipe away all of our tears. It's like, well, what do you think you were crying about? I think what those tears are is it's actually us on the other end of the final judgment crying over our lives. Crying that we received the grace of God, crying that we're heading into heaven, crying because we're grateful for God had used us, but I think crying going, God, I could have done so much more with what you've given me. 
Do you remember the end of Schindler's List? Remember that, that scene at the end of Schindler's List when he saves all these, all the Jews from the Holocaust and at the very end he sees that he could have done so much more even then. He starts to take his ring off and he starts to take, well, I could have given this and I could have, I think there's a, there's a sense, I don't want to take it to the extreme of like, what does it mean for us to say, Lord, I want to leverage all that you have given me for your glory and our good. Guys, listen, I don't know who in here is five talents, two talents, one talent. Here's what I know about us as a church. I say this in humility, please hear this. We are a five talent church. And we are heading into this massive building. Guys, it is, every time I walk in there, I am completely overwhelmed because it is such a stewardship. And we are committed as staff and leaders of this church to steward that building well. And we're asking you to steward your lives and to steward your families. We're all gonna fail. This is why, by the way, the Bible teaches that there was only one man who was really the five talent servant. His name was Jesus Christ. He's the only man who at age 12 says, I gotta be about my father's business. He's the only one that took responsibility for his responsibility. In fact, he did more than that. He took responsibility for your irresponsibility. Because right, that's the, we all know this. Like when someone doesn't do something, what, is that, what happens? Well, it still needs to be done. So when he looked at your sin and your shame and your need and the wrath of God on you, he said, I will do something about it. Jesus did not bury uh, his talent. He was buried in the ground for our sake. He rose from the dead victoriously, and now he gives the grace of God so we can steward what God has given us. Let's pray. Lord, would you help us? We feel an enormous weight. I don't want to over-talk about this building, but I want us to be ready. It is such a gift to have 13 acres and 52,000 square feet, to have 1,300 seats, to have space for kids, to have all that we're going to have in the center of downtown in 2023 is an enormous stewardship. Lord, I pray that the people in this room would be faithful and fruitful, that they would focus on being faithful. You would bless them and help them to be fruitful, Lord. Lord, I pray that we would rethink over those elements of stewardship, Lord. There's one owner, we're not him. We are just managers and stewards called to guard and to grow while you're gone, knowing we're going to give an account when you return. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.